we're one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. And they sometimes call you nomads. My mom says that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. Welcome back to Hardly the Hottest. It is time to go to the Badlands and watch the good films of director Chloe Zhao. We're going to get all grungy in the van for her latest film, Nomadlands, starring Frances McDormand. Cowboy up and get back on the horse and the rider. Deal with some growing pains on the Pine Ridge Reservation and songs my brother taught me. And I hope you brought a bandana because we're going to have to brush the dust off our buns and wipe the tears from our eyes after watching these sad tales. This is hardly the hottest, and we're the podcast that you're going to find yourself driving across the country in a van just to keep listening to. Giddy up, partner. Hee haw. Hee haw. Ryan, who is this Chloe character, and why are we dedicating a whole episode to her? She made The Rider in 2017, and The Rider just blew up. And uh, and so I watched it, also loved it. Uh, and ever since then, uh, you know, she's she's been on my radar. So, yeah. What about you, Dunks? Just saw the poster for Nomadland spelled out with license plates from every different state. Collecting <laughs> license plates from the side of the road is a wonderful pastime of mine. Uh, read the description. No need to watch the trailer. I was absolutely on board. And then after I saw Sound of Metal, which I think is my favorite film of uh, last year. You said, check out the writer. I did. I dug it. So yeah, Chloe Zhao. She is absolutely a film festival critical darling. She has won 109, 109 awards with uh, an additional 86 nominations. So she is just an absolute crusher. Now, where is she coming from? So Chloe was born in Beijing, went to boarding school in London, hopped over to high school in Los Angeles, and then went to film school at NYU starting around 2010. Duncan, your alma mater. Yeah, I know. The fighting cinematographers. Let's hear it for the fighting violets. I think <laughs> where the purple torch is. <laughs> Meow. Right, yeah. So 2010, she's in New York going to film school. 2015, she's debuting her feature at Sundance. And then 2021, She's in the Marvel Universe, uh, about to release The Eternals, which for me, I know is a film that got comedian Kumail Nanjiani jacked the hell up. So enough about the Marvel Universe. Let's go to the Badlands of South Dakota, where Chloe's first three films have created a trilogy that some are calling neo-westerns. I think these are westerns, but they're not your typical western. This isn't your John Wayne's West. Um, there's not a lot of duels and shootouts and piano bars and saloons and howdy partners going on. Um, <laughs> but there are cowboys and there are some partners. Um, but yeah, this isn't what you're going to think of when you think of maybe an average or typical Western, particularly uh, classic Westerns. But Duncan, what makes a Chloe Western, do you think? I certainly have a narrow idea of what the Western is. Yeah, as you're saying, gunslingers, bad guys on the plains. But if you boil it down to the theme of men and women who are on the move to find a better future and the difference, you know, trading in civilization for a place in nature, are you going to tame this land or is this land going to tame you? 
yeah, that that wild spirit is front and center in all of Chloe's films. So yeah, I will accept yeah. that neo-Western label that she's been getting. A Western, it's more about the soul of the movie than it is about maybe the predictable narrative beats. It's more about people, like you said, go looking for a better future, taking big risks. Uh, you know, it's wild, circumstances are out of your control, you don't know who you'll run into. And it's it's almost like a self-discovery as much as it is discovering the land. I mean, that in that way, I think Kelly Reichert's a lot of her movies are what neo-westerns like Meeks Cut Off or First Cow. Yeah. Absolutely. Go back to episode two if you want to hear us talk about Miss Reichart, I Heart Reichart. So Chloe is taking on the neo-westerns and she is doing that with the classic neorealism style. All of her stories take place with real people in real places, one or two traditional actors, zero sets. But yeah, we got long silences, beautiful landscapes. These films are working, as you can see, by all those awards she is collecting. And my tears. She's getting some of those, too. <laughs> Collected them in a bottle. <laughs> Put it on the mantle, baby. Duncan, not just that, but she, when discussing the writer, discussed how she comes from the, and I quote, Terrence Malick School of Filmmaking. I mean, I don't know if she's trying to pander to us, but consider us pandered. As someone who's gone to film school, I don't think you can teach what Terrence Malick does. I remember the first review of a fellow filmmaker talking about Terrence Malick was, I had no idea what to do on set because he would just say, point the camera at those birds that just showed up. <laughs> I didn't have that class in film school, Ryan. <laughs> the actor's the like, the should I be in the frame? Should I be like itching in or out? Or like, just shut up. You're ruining the moment. <laughs> Yeah, so we have Terrence Malick's first film, The Badlands, then his big, big film, Breakout, one of the, you know, considered one of the most gorgeous films, Days of Heaven. Chloe certainly has characters walking through those weeds in the beautiful plains. So let's go back to the beginning of Chloe's career with songs my brother taught me. I want to see what's out there. Go travel all over, see things. My brother Johnny is moving away with his girlfriend. I don't understand why everyone's always leaving. Songs My Brother Taught Me came out in 2015. It's Chloe's debut. It's after the loss of his father and with few options for work on the reservation, John becomes an alcohol smuggler to make money so he can move away with his girlfriend as she goes to college and he will be leaving his sister Jay Sean and mother Lisa behind. What'd you think, Ragai? All of Chloe's trademark style and approach is here. Uh, and I think that it made for a really powerful, contemplative, if not fairly subdued even for her um, <laughs> film. What about yeah. you, Dunks? Authentic, intimate, sincere, and absolutely gorgeous. This is Chloe being Chloe. We're taking on realism. John Reddy plays Johnny Winters. Jay Sean plays Jay Sean Winters and Lisa, their mom, is played by actress Irene Medard, who you might know as the voice of Pocahontas in Disney's films and the mother of Pocahontas in Terrence Malick's New World. We've got the Malick greatness all over this one. Back to neorealism. Chloe says this story is 80% true. This was filmed mostly in John's house. Uh, his father is featured in this film, 
giving a morning at the wake of his fictional father. And John is actually one of 25 kids. So Chloe was drawn to tell a story to expose like the problem is that there is nothing to do for a lot of people living on the reservation and the problems this cause. The real themes of the film kick off right away in one of the opening scenes while Johnny is trying to break in a horse and says, anything that runs wild got something bad in them. You want to leave some of that in there because they need it to survive out here. And I think you see that the lack of anything to do played out in what is happening. You know, prison, 25 kids with nine different women, uh, alcohol and substance abuse, and just a lack of uh, dignifying work or dignifying surroundings. The crux of the film is what does the reservation symbolize? Uh, to Johnny, the older brother, he views it as a prison. But Jay Sean, uh, she begins to see it as, you know, a community full of a rich heritage. And it's that, you know, what has the greater society, what, you know, stigmas have they placed upon you versus, you know, what is our true nature and how do we embrace that? Yeah, I think the contrast between the brother and the sister and how they see the reservation and how they see their community is pretty stark. I feel like she sees uh, an enduring beauty. Uh, I think uh, Johnny says of Jay Sean, she sees something here I don't. And that voiceover is happening while Jay Sean is doing a traditional dance in some traditional Native American dress. She hears these echoes of the past um, while Johnny, he just sees the enduring pain. He's running you know, alcohol. He's getting beat up. He's looking to escape because, you know, he sees that as far as he's concerned, there's no future. Um, while Jay Sean, she's meeting, uh, you know, the guy with sevens all over him, himself. I think he's tattooed on himself, right? He is covered in tattoos. His room is covered in art floor to floor. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know where he put it, but it's it's even on the poster of the film. The, the sevens look like little birds flying into the horizon. Yeah, yeah. And he says how it's important to their community and how... Uh, you know, whenever things ended at Wounded Knee, it was uh, prophesied that things would happen in the seventh generation. Um, so I don't know. There's just a real sense of who they were that Jay Sean feels, sees, embraces, while Johnny sees more of the nothing to do, the harsh reality, and um, the escapism. Johnny is literally trying to escape, run away to college with his girlfriend. Uh, when he visits his older brother in prison, he says he would rather be there than live in his mother's home. So I think it's, you know, beautiful. The younger generation, like embracing their heritage. This is not something to be ashamed of. This is something to celebrate. But for the people who aren't feeling that hope, aren't feeling that pride, as you brought up, a lot of the film is also about escapism, distractions, and just being numb to avoid the pain. I think one of the most interesting quotes is whenever the mom uh, visits her son in prison, but he says, make sure God just isn't another man you abandon your children for. One of the most compelling elements of Chloe's film is how almost everything in the movie, whether it's religion or love or family or, um, you know, something like a, a nice glass of wine, they're all depicted as escape escapism rather than a healthy expression of human flourishing. And I think that is because there is nothing to do and they've been put in this place where they aren't given purpose or dignity. I think that's really powerful to see how everything becomes something to numb where you are rather than something to enjoy life with. I mean, do the history of alcoholism on this reservation. Alcohol is illegal. And that's how 
Johnny gets into running it in to make a little bit money so he can go on the run. I think you nailed it with the Chloe quote where it says, you know, the problem is there's nothing to do. I think when you take away people's purpose and their dignity, a bad side of human nature comes out because when you dehumanize people, uh, they are left to cope. And I think that this movie is just trying to show how little there is to do. <laughs> and then there, there is that hope in the Jay Sean character where she sees what was and what can still be those echoes of the lost path or the, the lost culture. Um, I think they're powerful. And I think that ultimately, you know, they start to uh, resonate with Johnny. If you see Nomad and the writer and you want more Chloe, come on down to songs. My brother taught me. Yeah, this is much more subdued, poetic, lyrical uh, view of the landscape with those harsh realities coming in there. Duncan, you have some for fans of here. You have Smoke Signals, 1998. Have not seen that. Yeah, so Smoke Signals, as the trailer will tell you, um, the first feature film written, directed, and produced by Native Americans. Uh, it was a Sundance darling in 1998 and was released by Miramax. So it definitely has that late 90s laid-back comedy drama mix. I think my favorite Native American actor, got to give it up to Wes Studi. Uh, known as Magua in The Last of the Mohicans, directed by Michael Mann, who brought Wes back for Heat, one of the greatest action films of all time. And recently we've seen him in Hostels from 2017. And then a new actor certainly keeping my eyes on and I've loved him and everything I've seen is Zach McLarnon, most well-known as Hansi Dent in season two of Fargo. He's also in season two of Westworld and in Dr. Sleep from 2019 a sequel to the shining you know 30 years later that i think is a lot better than people assumed it will be oh you saw that i have not yeah. seen that it is I, I think it's actually good i mean it, it's not the shining and there's some ridiculous moments but that's good film's good worth the watch just don't expect kubrickian perfection wow hot take duncan likes dr sleep you know what else i like ryan What's that? The Rider 2017. <laughs> I believe God gives each of us a purpose. For the horse that's trying across the prairie. Go, man, go, 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 go. For a cowboy, it's to ride. The Rider is Chloe's breakout film, came out in 2017. It is following a young cowboy after suffering a near-fatal head injury as he undertakes a search for a new, new identity and what it means to be a man in the heartland of America. And this movie was very much reminiscent of The Sound of Metal to me. When I was watching The Sound of Metal this year, I immediately thought of The Rider, the loss of purpose the identity wrapped around that purpose. I mean, there's a lot of correlation here. So if you like Sound of Metal, you're going to like the writer. Watching this film, for me, was just a pure, total empathy. You know, elated seeing him and how much he loves riding that horse in slow motion on the plains and absolutely crushed when you see that this lifestyle will probably kill him, but it's all he got and he wants it so bad it hurts. We're saying, yeah, this won a bunch of awards. Wonderful feature. So yeah, how did this one get made? Chloe met Brady when he was teaching her how to ride a horse while they're on the set of Songs My Brother Taught Me. And they wanted to make a film together. 
They weren't sure what it was going to be. And then Brady had a near fatal rodeo accident and they decided to make this into the film. And as Brady has said in interviews, he says this is 60% true. The percentage is lowering. <laughs> it's becoming more fiction as we go. Wait till we get to the Eternals. <laughs> How much of the Eternals is true? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's starring Brady Jardo as Brady, uh, his dad, Tim, and his sister, Lily. They are all playing the Blackburn family. And, you know, this is filmed in their house. Once again, we're back in that South Dakota reservation giving us that true neorealism style. And the film builds upon the themes of, you know, struggling to make ends meet on the reservation and really enhances the theme of creating meaning in your own life and what is identity. Uh, Ryan, what does it mean to you in this film to be bound to the earth? One of the most interesting correlations that Chloe makes is in a quote that Brady has to his sister the idea of man as a wounded animal. So he tells his sister, you know, I was hurt real bad. And if an animal was hurt as bad as I was, they'd be put down. The implication being like, they can't do what they're made to do anymore. And he, but then he says, but I have to go on living just because he's lost that purpose. He's lost that ability to do what he loves. Um, yeah. He can't be put down as easily as like, say a horse or something because he is a man. And I think that's an interesting uh, correlation to pull of, how out in the West you see, you know, everything has its purpose. Everything has its function. And for him, he's lost his function, but he's still there. And so what does he do with existence without a function? Uh, that's kind of an alien thought to the West, at least historically, because everything would have performed a function or a purpose. Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Dunks? What are you, what are you thinking about that? I mean, we start low. I think he wakes up in the film and we're just seeing that horseshoe shaped scar on his skull that has not healed yet just a silver ring of staples and yeah what what is he going to do now uh and you see his friend um yeah his best friend lane also another real rodeo guy who is now paralyzed nonverbal you know basically only speak through sign language spelling one letter at a time but they love it they they want this so bad they're cowboys. They're, you know, the friend rips on them like, what are you going to do? Become a farmer? Like even being connected to the land in a different way is not good enough. And it's just like in Sound of Metal, like this loss of identity. And how do you find meaning in your life once it's gone? I think there was this took a different angle than Sound of Metal, though, where I feel like Sound of Metal with Ruben's, uh, you know, past addictions. I think it was looking at more of identity and like your addiction, addiction to your identity. And this one, it's just more of like the vacuum of not having that identity. Like you have this great quote, uh, whenever he's talking to his sister, you know, Lily, uh, I believe God gives each of us a purpose to the horse. It's to run across the prairie for a cowboy. It's to ride. And that purpose is just taken away. And it's not necessarily that he's addicted to it. It's just taken away. And we're left with him. And he feels like a shell because everything in his life has been built around this. I mean, yeah. when he goes to see his buddy who's been hurt, they look at YouTube videos of his buddy in his glory days because even though his buddy can't do it, that's still their passion. That's still what they care about. Yeah. And the loss of identity and not a lot of opportunity, once again, on there in the reservation, you know, works at, you know, a family dollar type of store and there's little kids who come in and recognize them. You know, how is he just how is he going to deal with that loss of being a hero? 
out there in the rodeo to just living the normal working class life? Yeah, how do you swallow that bitter pill of your new reality? I think this is where Chloe's style really fits these stories well, because I think when we're dealing with these kinds of losses, it is a lot of empty space and a lot of time to think and a lot of time to kind of pull back. And that's how humans, that's how most of us experience those moments. And I think that her having the patience to allow the land and the character to just kind of breathe alongside one another um, and just let us feel Brady's ache combined with just the wide open spaces. And then I think I love how she uses wind in this movie. I mean, constantly she's filming the wind kind of filling the empty land. It's, you know, pushing the grass, it's blowing to Brady. That was once the touch of freedom, right? He's on the horse, the winds in his face. He's doing what he loves. He's a cowboy. He's made to ride. And now as he's walking the fields and can't ride anymore, it's just this constant, almost tortured pull of that purpose that's been lost and he won't be a rider again. And that wind just is almost has turned on him. And to me, that's just profound. Yeah. Being married to the land, tough landscape, like that pioneer attitude as his friends tell him to cowboy up, you got to get back on that horse. Yeah. That attitude will help you get things done. But when it's going to kill you, maybe don't cowboy up. Sorry if I'm a week's soft coastal. <laughs> okay, you're so soft. You heard it here first, folks. Sacramento Duncan says, don't cowboy up. Brings us to, you know, four fans of further viewing. If what you love is going to kill you, the wrestler. Bringing that to mind for sure. Uh, we've talked about it. Sound of metal when not letting a physical setback become a personal tragedy. And if you want to see a real family, in a real community, playing versions of their own truth, Risha. I feel like you're letting me talk a lot about uh, the rider there. Give me, give me a hot take for you. What struck you about it? I want to watch that boy ride. So I want to talk about my top five bike ride. <laughs> okay. Duncan, if you also like to cowboy up on Babe the Blue Bike, tell me about your top five bike rides. Yeah, I don't know if I cowboy up as much as giddy up and mosey along down that road. Are you afraid of the time it took you and Bridget literally nine hours to go 15 miles across LA? That LA traffic. You average like three miles an hour? Oh yeah, we were joking like, are we going to get there before sundown? We got five hours to go 15 miles. The answer was no. We were racing against the sunset. I was stuck in LA traffic in a 15 passenger van and a very long trailer and I still beat them across <laughs> LA. You know, like Chloe, I just want to take in my time and let that atmosphere soak in. All right. Top five most interesting places I've biked. An abandoned Greyhound track in Texas. Well, that was a cool place. Riding in three inches of soft dirt, not actually a good ride. Number four, an abandoned go-kart track in North Carolina. That was a smooth ride. That was fun. Keeping up with the abandoned number three. I'm sensing a theme here. An abandoned chicken warehouse about half the size of a football field. That was a trip. And then true emotional one, number two, I biked down the flight path of the Wright brothers in Kitty Hawk. I think earlier that month I was leaving your wedding and driving through Ohio, went to their little bike shop. And then a few months later, 
a bike mechanic that can learn to fly, Ryan? That brought a tear to my eye. And number one, biking every street in Manhattan. Take me out of the country, put me in the city. I feel at home. I love it. Duncan's a city boy at heart. And also what I'm gathering is if you want to ruin Duncan's bike ride, just come with him and it's not abandoned anymore and he hates it. (laughs) What about you, Rad Guy? What have been your thrills Um, as a rider? So yeah, one of my first favorite rides was uh, Trans Am 2011. Duncan, you've been on this ride, the Hell's Backbone Road in Utah. It's got a steep gradient on either side. It's got twists and turns. It's got signs telling you you're probably going to die. And I was tucked in, just loving every minute of it. And then 2014, Duncan, this is you and me. We're up in Glacier National Park, Road to the Sun. And I was tucked in behind cars and passing them. And it was glorious. Tisk tisk. Yeah, Duncan did not approve of my, my devil-may-care attitude. But Duncan, sometimes you got to cowboy up, got to ride or die. Um, and then on the less thrill-seeking, I did a bike bicycle tour with a buddy of Italy, uh, particularly the Lecce region. And um, San Foca to Otranto was really a beautiful ride along the coast there. Speaking of coast, Duncan, again, you and I discovered the Lost Coast in California. You rode in, I rode out, and that was just uh, insane. And then also one of my other favorite rides was Skagway, Alaska to Carcross in the Yukon Territory. You climb up out of the White Pass, and then it's just glorious, unadulterated wilderness, mountains, green beauty for 60 miles. And then you try to ride back and collapse on the road, and you picked up by your friend in a van. Because I died. I didn't ride. The joy of riding, the joy of seeing wide open spaces, that is what we explore in Chloe's next film, Nomadland. What the nomads are doing is not that different than what the pioneers did. Hey, Fern! Gotta make the hole bigger. (laughs) I think Fern's part of an American tradition. Oh, he's gonna come right through the glass. My dad used to say, what's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life just remembering. After losing everything in the Great Recession, Fern, played by Francis McDormand, embarks on a journey through the American West, living as a van-dwelling modern-day nomad. Ragai, what you think? I feel like this whole episode has just been the appetizer, and this, this is the main event. This is the main course. Man, this movie, I had to untangle myself from this movie and try to look at what was actually there. And, but yeah, it got me deep. This thing got me. Ooh, Duncan, what'd you think? I cried four times. I give it four stars. I saw it as hopeful and full of community. While it seems like a lot of people see this as a damnation of capitalism and just a lonely existence, we will get into that head to head on what this means at the end. Stay tuned. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I, I don't see the damnation of capitalism as, at all so much as just a complete rejection of it. <laughs> I mean, kind of. Not complete rejection. She's still working to make money, but it's like, I don't know. That's interesting. Anyway, Duncan, you've, you've got a hot take here. Chloe sold out. Please defend your, defend your note. Chloe is a sellout. She is working with A-list actors. Just kidding. Yeah, so like her other films, we are seeing lots of fresh faces because they're 
real people playing real versions of themselves. You got Swanky, Linda, and Bob Wells, who is apparently well-known in the van-dwelling community. And I'm really excited that we got Cat Clifford. He's the cowboy with the guitar that you've seen in all three of her films so far. And we also have Derek, who uh, I think was be- beats up Johnny and Brothers. Uh, we also see him in The Rider. And here he is just a dad trying to get some power for his little girl's birthday party at a campground. I was actually watching this with uh, Katie, and she has watched all of these Chloe movies with me and so whenever she saw victor she goes that guy's from songs my brother taught me and she like elbowed me i was like oh yeah it is i wouldn't have noticed if she hadn't told me victor fan favorite (laughs) he's a fan favorite if you're a chloe fan he's there when you go to chloe con in 2022 hopefully we will see cat clifford and Derek hanging out there and we could have a new segment who's your cowboy (laughs) so yeah besides those non-actors as you're saying we have david Mm-hmm. Strather, right. actually, it was really nice to see him. I don't think I've seen him since uh, "Good Night and Good Luck." When's the last time you saw him in a movie? So we're talking about David Strathern. I think been working for thirty or forty years. Yeah, certainly "Good Night, Good Luck" is his standout, but he's he's just a good old friend that's always there. Yeah, I actually thought he was phenomenal in this. I thought he nailed the uh, character he was going for. He was so awkward. He was so reserved yet trying to put himself out there i thought i thought he was well cast and his performance really uh brought a lot of heart to the film and to his relationship with francis mcdormand's fern yeah seeing two seniors in their 60s flirt with each other while flipping burgers on a grill that is not a scene i have seen before and it cheered my little heart up yeah on our bike tours ryan and i have been tourists in this lifestyle uh, we have dried our underwear in odd places, taken coin showers at campgrounds, have fertilized nature, to put it politely. Ryan, where's the weirdest place you've dried out your chamois on a bike tour or done laundry, so to speak? More like how long is I, have I gone without doing laundry? Ooh, <laughs> pretty long. <laughs> yeah, remember, I mean, you know, we're talking the hose showers. We're talking, you know. It's funny when you get into that, when you get into that mindset, uh, you just stop caring how dirty you are and whether you smell and what people think you're just living, baby. You're just living. You are what you are. You're human. You know, you've got, I mean, more like how many times have you taken a crap out in the middle of nowhere? Um, I mean, yeah, it, there is definitely elements of this lifestyle that Duncan and I have dabbled in with our bike tours. Um, I've never done the straight van dwelling but i have slept in some very strange places duncan where's the strangest place you've ever slept oh man route 66 fall of 2019 i would recommend doing route 66 would not recommend biking through the mojave desert at the end of august where i slept in an abandoned hotel outside the only place with water with maybe 40 miles in each direction (laughs) sounds sounds safe it was safe. Like the people who ran the gas station, they're like, that's the best spot in town. It's abandoned because the water's polluted. So we can't legally rent it out. So here's a broom, sweep it out. There you go, kid. Thank you very much. Yeah. So for me, I think it goes back to my bike tour in Italy with my buddy. That was 2013. And uh, we had gone down, caught a ride with a buddy of his in a van down to Lecce. And his buddy was going to lead a five-star kind of backroads bike tour 
they all had a hotel in this like really nice hotel and we had nowhere to sleep. And so he slept in the mechanic van that had barely enough room for him. And I had nowhere to sleep. So I just walked down to the dock. There was this old stone dock and it basically had the rocks go up underneath it. And I just slept underneath that dock because I remember people kept walking up and some of them were drunk and I was afraid they were going to piss on me if I slept (laughs) on the rocks. So I like tucked up underneath the uh, dock and yeah, woke up to the sunrise at five and went and got an espresso and cycled to Taliano the next day. A variety of people are brought to this van life that's brought up in nomad lands. You know, some people seeking the adventure, others push there because they can't afford to own land, but they can't afford to own a van. Chloe is building on her themes of trying to create meaning in your life after a loss. One of the biggest themes in Nomadlands is grief and loss and how that sort of sparks the call to action to go on the hero's journey out into the West. It's fair to say that this movie resonates with us both personally in a lot of ways because we have uh, enjoyed traveling. We enjoy finding small towns. Uh, we've enjoyed doing the things that Fern has shown doing in this movie. And so I think that, yeah, we, we come at this from a, from a more personal place than most of the films that we, that we cover. What just came up to my mind, it was like some little diner in Montana where the artistic decorations were just the community's prom photos from the last, you know, 10, 20 years. You know, that's not going to be in the tourist book, but that's just one of those places that's in my mind seven years later. Yeah. And that's where you want to be. Like, it reminds me of Middlegate, Nevada, which is just a bar with like four RVs behind it and a above ground pool. And we just hung out in the bar, the riders. And then we went out and sat just like uh, Fern and uh, Dave. We put our, our chairs out and watched the sunset and then watching the stars passing around a whiskey bottle and talking just for hours on end. And I'll never forget that night. Like that was just, it's just some RVs huddled around a pool in a bar, Middlegate, Nevada. (laughs) This lifestyle is attractive to people like us. Some people see it as adventure. For other people, it's a necessity economically. And for others, it's just, they want to be on their own. But for everyone, it's throughout this film, there's just grief and loss. And this is sort of the call to action to see what is out there in the West. Yeah, I think that's a really telling part. I think that many of the people uh, that I've met, and one of the reasons I even took up that lifestyle, for me, it was less a particular grief and loss and more I was struggling with depression um, and just feeling very purposeless. And uh, and so I think it caused me to, yeah, seek these things out. I think that's drawn out in this movie. Uh, many of the nomads have a grief or a loss in their background that kind of caused them to... Uh, reject a more traditional life and to start the nomad life. And Duncan, I'm just wondering, why is that? Well, the one that struck me the most was there was a woman, you know, who said she had a corporate job, was paid well. Economic concerns were not a problem for her. But when her friend died with their brand new sailboat in the driveway, she realized life is for a living. And so she just minimalized her life so she could live out there at the van and see the life. So yeah, that's someone else's loss inspiring you. But, you know, with Fern, when a loved one has died in your home, you don't want to be in that home. So you try to build a new one. And that struggle to find one is what pushes you out there on the road. 
to find that life. So sometimes you're running away from pain. Sometimes you're running towards joy. It's just that balance. But everyone out there is on the move. Yeah, I really like that. I liked that uh, element that you drew out. Some people are running away from pain. Some people are running towards a life they want to live, um, having seen that the life they were living, uh, you know, could be taken away or wasn't what they wanted it to be. I thought that was really, really good. Uh, I think one of the things I love about this film as well to kind of make it a time capsule is how she bookends it with Christmas on either side. So it's like a year in Fern's life. We get to go with her to the places and the people she meets. We don't really know how long before she left Empire Nevada. And we don't really know how long after she'll keep living the way she's living. I think I love just kind of the, the window of a year. I think it bookends things really well. I think it kind of shows, for me anyway, when having traveled, I have a very distinct memory of what years, where I was, the people I met, because they're all different travels and different places and unique and distinct. And I think just rang true with me the way she structured the film. I saw the bookends as tying back into Chloe's sort of interest with, you know, being tied to the earth. I was viewing Fern as more you know, migrating with the seasons. Like we see her working in the cold winters, getting that seasonal work at a giant Amazon warehouse. After that, she's going down south to, you know, Arizona. She's a little snowbird, works her way to North Dakota, back over to the West Coast. She's just flowing with the seasons. And I see that, you know, when everyone's living in their vans, they're living in cramp campgrounds. You're closer to the earth. You're feeling it. I mean, there's the beautiful things of just seeing, you know, like Terrence, Terrence Malick, look at these beautiful birds floating along the river, their eggshells dropping to the river and floating down, you know, the cycles of life. Yeah. And all these people, they're so different, but they're brought together through this community. And community is, is front and center in this film, too. And Ryan, I, they meet together as a community. They are called the rubber tramp rendezvous where they teach each other how to make this lifestyle work. Are you more of a three gallon bucket person or seven gallon? Cause you want to be easy on the knees. We're talking about your poop buckets. That's what we're talking about here. That's what they're teaching each other out there in the desert. Yeah. I had a really visceral response where Princess McDormand realized she used the bathroom and I actually yelled and said, take the bucket out of your van. <laughs> like, why would you do that in your van? Like, come on. Like, you don't, you don't want to have that in your van. You don't shit where you eat. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Francis. Um, I think one of the things that ties this community together is this lifestyle. And a lot of it is them sharing one another's grief. So a lot of it is them explaining saying how they came to that place, how they started that lifestyle. Again, a lot of it is about grief and loss. And one of the things that seems to be a constant thread that ties these people together and that ties this lifestyle together is these people refuse to find a substitute for that loss. Culture encourages us um, when we experience a pain or a loss to find something to fill that pain or loss or substitute it. Um, to distract ourselves or to throw ourselves into. And I think the beauty of this is they, they have a freedom in not needing to find a substitute. I guess you could argue this lifestyle is a substitute, but I see it more as an awakening uh, where you don't have to find a substitute for that grief or loss. And therefore you're able to do 
um, these kind of things and not worry about uh, what you're told to worry about and to enjoy the freedom of exploration and, and shitting in a bucket because it doesn't matter. And how is the inhibition of not wanting to do that keeping you from doing things that might move you or the people you might meet? And I think the idea of community is interesting because that community is so fleeting. They meet once at an annual gathering and then they all go their separate ways. And Katie, my wife, actually brought that up. She was interested how they had such strong bonds when they didn't spend that much time together. I mean, Fern spends time with Linda May, Dave. Swanky. Yeah, and Swanky. Like there's those three. She has three friends that kind of are taken from that gathering, but really they don't see each other that much. And yet their community ties are clearly very strong. So yeah, what do you attribute that to, Dunks? Ryan, I'm going to sell you out right here. If you bumped into any of our cyclists, which you haven't seen in a few years, would you not give them a big hug because of that time you've spent together out in the wilderness on the road? Well, yeah, totally. Um, There's the bond. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, I've even, I mean, shout out to Richard. He's here in Albuquerque. We've ridden bikes together a couple of times, gotten some beers together. You know, we're hanging out. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not saying that you can't have those bonds, but I think it's, I think it's really interesting how much time they spend alone. I think this movie for clearly putting a, not just a premium, but like showing the beauty of community. There's a lot of shots of Frances McDormand doing a puzzle alone, sitting in her van alone, doing laundry alone, looking kind of bored or sad at times. I think maybe that's where um, people might come make this an indictment of capitalism, like she's not happy. But I don't think that's meant to show her as unhappy. I think it's just meant to show her I mean, we're all like that. Like if you're at the, what's the difference between sitting in a van by yourself and being on the TV by yourself in your house? You know, yeah. that's just, that's just the, that's the, that's the nuts and bolts of reality in our day to days. She certainly values her community, but I think she values her independence so much more. Um, David, you know, who's her potential romantic partner always wants her to come with him. Her sister wants to offer help and have her live in their guest room. But Fern just wants to be on the road. And I think this, here we go, Ryan. This is what we're going to say, Duncan. You're, you're getting there. You're getting there. All right. Yeah. Team longing versus team hope. Yeah. First off, I want you to go back to the point you just made because I think it's really good. So just to give you guys a kind of an overview, I see this movie as heavier on longing than on hope, although I do think there's hope in it. Duncan sees it more hopeful and less longing. And we were discussing this on the phone yesterday, and he brought out a really good point about David and Burns' sister. So go ahead and, and throw that out there, Dunks. I've been called a rubber tramper on the side of the road in Route 66 in an abandoned town called Two Guns next to an abandoned roadside zoo. Them's fighting words. Not fighting words. That was a badge of honor <laughs> that I will absolutely wear. So I can relate to Fern and rather than, you know, seeing her longing for steady employment and a great job, I don't, I see her longing for closure, but loving this lifestyle. And I saw, you know, David and her sister, they longed for her to be stationary and set roots with them. Uh, but that's just not for who Fern is. So I saw this as a film of hope where you know, there may be a struggle, but she can find work. She can find a place to be. You know, people are there, you know, when she's, you know, freezing her buns off outside a gas station. 
a nice woman comes out and says, there's a church down the road. But then there are the hard times when a man at a different gas station says she got to move along and Fern is called into action to get out of there fast. But yeah, so I see this as, as hope as there, the road is out there for you and can provide you that meaning in life that you want. And it's, I don't see this as a tragic tale. There's tragedy in her life, but she keeps moving forward. This is, this is not a tragedy for me in the least. When I was crying, I was crying because I was seeing people out there willing to help. Take it away before I yeah. start crying now, right, guy? <laughs> <laughs> Let them out, Dunks. Let them out. Yeah, I, so I think the thing that you, you brought out to me, which I thought was a really fascinating point, is you know dave has this longing or her sister has this longing and they're trying to project or uh rope burn into that longing um where she's not having that issue and i thought that was really interesting like where what she's doing she is happy i thought that was a really good point you made also i'm just laughing because you were saying rubber tramp was like a badge of honor so now i'm imagining your cv duncan moore terrence malik wannabe <laughs> rubber tramp so but duncan i'm gonna have to push back a little bit here so there's a real freedom in no longer needing to find a substitute for your loss, but just allowing it to be, and then allowing you to appreciate life, I think, in a more honest, open way where, yeah, you see things as fleeting, but there are new places to see, and there's people to meet, and it's beautiful, and it's gorgeous. But I think even in the film, when she's talking to Bob towards the end, he talks about his son who killed himself. And... He talks about, I don't say there's any final goodbye. I'll just say, see you down the road. So I think there's a longing in Fern's life and amongst the nomads for there to be no final goodbye. Like they don't want any loss to be final. Uh, Fern still wants somewhere down the road, the idea of her home and her husband who she had to be regained. So there's this longing for a reunion, but there's no guarantee. Human, humanly speaking, we can't know that'll happen. So I think that that's where the longing comes in. So there is hope in the sense of she's able to live a, I think, a more unencumbered free life. But there is something unrequited in her lifestyle because it is impermanent because even in her lifestyle, that will end eventually. Like she will die at some point. So to me, there's something, the impermanence of the lifestyle plus the this, this hope that they can't seem to help that no goodbye is final, no loss is final. To me, that's longing. All I see her longing for is independence and that's what she gets and a little bit of closure. But I also, I don't think you really get closure. I think you just learn to let go. And you're saying this lifestyle is impermanent. Life is impermanent. We all have our expiration date. Like you're seeing sure. swanky who knows that she has cancer and she just wants to get to Alaska one last time because that's where she feels alive. When you're saying longing, I interpret that as unrequited. And when I hear unrequited, I think of unrequited love. I think Fern is, you know, having trouble letting go of her husband. As she says, she spent too much time remembering, implying not enough time living. But David is there. David is throwing himself at her. She visits him. Yeah, yeah. That's not for me. Like, Fern has what she wants, and it's a tough living. But if she embraces it, you know, I'm reading my existentialism, Camus' essay about Sisyphus pushing up that rock. Pushing that rock is tough work, but it gives his life meaning. Fern, I think Fern has meaning. 
Yeah, but I don't know, Dunks. I still, I still think, I mean, would you agree that they, they still have that desire, though, for no fi- goodbye to be final, but they have nothing to guarantee that a goodbye isn't final? It doesn't seem like it's a denial of pain. It just seems like longing for a place where pain isn't permanent? That's where the crux of it is, between where I see the longing and to where you see more of the hope. Yeah. To me, that's a that's a stronger thread playing into the end of the scene, the last, the last uh, shots, which I won't ruin. But yeah, I don't think it totally devalues. I get what you're saying. Like, I think she is living the way she wants, and I think there is a beauty to that and a hope to that. Uh, but I think she's still, you know, she's still like all of us, dogged by the hope that no goodbye is final. We will agree to disagree, but I think we both agree that if you are a fan of this film. You should watch Wendy and Lucy. All Wendy has is her little pup in her car. This is Kelly Reichert going back to episode two again for us. We have bicycle thieves when losing a bike means losing your livelihood. Uh, You know, one of the films that kicked off neorealism that Chloe's adapting well. And Rye Guy, you say what you got to say. I'll sit this one. You know, it's true. You're angry, but you this is into the wild. Deal with it, Duncan. This is totally the same vein. The wonderlust. I mean, I'm not saying that like the motivations or they're the same person or the context, but the, the wonderlust, it's the same thing. Come on. But when I see Into the Wild, I just see a teenager scribbling anarchy into their high school desk, giving a flip to the world. It's like I saw him as motivated more by pain than adventure. That's how I saw Into the Wild. And that's why. I don't view him as an inspirational character, but do view Fern as one. Huh. It almost makes me wish we'd paired this with Into the Wild because I love Into the Wild and you don't. I think a lot of it probably goes back to, yeah, the longing and the hope where I think that absolutely he's not a, he's not a perfect guy at all. And you shouldn't model your little life off him a lot. But I do think that he at his core is rejecting a lot of the same things that Fern is rejecting. And he has a lot of the same longings behind his travels but whoo duncan yeah so anyway into the wild but um if you think if you if your team longing watch into the wild if your team hope ignore into the wild i guess this is where <laughs> we're gonna have to land on that one <laughs> but duncan also this movie is such a great showcase for francis mcdormand i love her as an actress i almost think no one is as good as her i just kind of like it's almost it's negative but i don't mean it almost like the cold smile and nod like the way she keeps people at arm's length when she's not playing over the top characters. I think she's just, is a really natural and I think just well done. Like she's just really good at showing distance, emotional distance in ways that are compelling. Cause I think that a lot of us struggle with emotional distance with those we meet. So I think her performance is great. And I think it brings up top five favorite Francis McDormand films. In no particular order, but I mean, the obvious one is Fargo. Uh, I mean, she's so great in Fargo. Uh, she's really good in Almost Famous. And then, um, man, I love her in Burn After Reading. I think she's the perfect balance of uh, neurotic, self-conscious insecurity and also just funny. Like, it's just great. Her and Richard Jenkins' uh, dynamic in that movie is really fun. And I enjoy her in Three Billboards and Mississippi Burning, uh, especially Mississippi Burning playing kind of a subdued abused housewife 
I think it's a pretty compelling performance. It's pretty quiet. It's a small role, uh, but I think she does a lot with it. Uh, and I think a lot of that, it has to do with her ability to show emotional depth while still keeping people at an emotional distance. Um, so yeah, I really love her in Mississippi Burning. I'd say Fern is closest to the three billboards character, less bite. Yeah. But as you're bringing these all up, just so much range, like Fargo, the very intelligent, but very polite sort of dynamic is there is completely different than, um, yeah, for me, three billboards, Fargo, almost famous. Uh, my different ones are Blood Simple. I don't know if it's as much as her performance, but this is the Coen Brothers debut. This is, man, I just remember being blown away by how good of a debut this was. And also, as, as you always bring up Into the Wild and I'm not a fan, I'm going to fight right back and throw Raising Arizona at you. Yeah, actually, so I'm currently in a uh, introducing my neighbor to the Coen brothers. And so I rewatched Raising Arizona. But yeah, I enjoyed her in it. But yeah, Raising Arizona, it's a little campy. It's a little slapstick. Um, She's great in it. She's really funny. Um, But yeah, I agree. Her range is great. I think this is definitely going to be one of my top five performances for her. Uh, So it'll be knocking off one of the ones I just read off but I'm not sure which one. I really need to rewatch Almost Famous. I remember her performance in vague detail, and I probably haven't seen that movie in like eight years. So I I just remember liking it a lot. Yeah, I remember when that film came out, I was a little hardcore punk rock kid making my own fanzine, interviewing bands, going to the copy store. So everyone's like, oh, are you like that little boy in Almost Famous? Almost Famous, yeah, holds a nice place in my heart there. Duncan, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about what was the scene in Nomadland that made you cry the hardest? You know, I don't remember which one made me cry the hardest. I remember, you know, the nice woman at the gas station saying there's a church down the road. That was like, here's the kindness. Here come the tears. But I was on board with this film. I think it's like the second or third scene. She's peeing on the side of the road in Nevada. Amen. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I cried fairly regularly throughout this movie. But for me, the one that got me the most was when she's hanging out with the, um, the Wisconsin Wanderer. And when she recites Shakespeare's poetry and it cuts away and it just cuts away. to so like the desert landscape and the road and the signs on the road and then other places, I just found that really moving how she she takes the beautiful empty landscape and fills it with. Uh, these poetic words that, yeah, I think just hit at the core of humanity and what we're trying to do. And yeah, that got me. That got me good. Yeah. So speaking of being a hit, Chloe is absolutely a hit with the critics. I think all of her films have above 90, won a bunch of awards at film festivals. So what is next for Chloe? They're saying she's doing The Eternals, which stars Salma Hayek, Angelina Jolie, Kit Harrington, jacked as all hell, Kumail Nanjiani, and Barry Kihun, who is such a good actor that in Killing of a Sacred Deer, he can make eating a plate of spaghetti look like a vicious, violent threat. I would don't never remember his name, but every time I see him in a movie, I'm like, oh yeah, we're going to get weird. This guy's yeah. in it. <laughs> yeah. like, this is going to be great. So yeah, I was wondering, how in the heck did neorealist Chloe get hired to create a fantasy world of Eternals who are immortal and have been shaping humanity for millennia. And it just came down to 
she wrote the best pitch. She said, you know, I can work with actors you haven't seen before on screen, and I can have intimate relationships with a group of people and also showcase the writer landscape. Doesn't sound like it works, but that absolutely sounds like it'll work. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what she does with it. I'll definitely see it. She's one of my favorite directors working today, which probably doesn't surprise anyone since, again, she she and Terrence Malick have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah, I'll see it. I'm not super stoked about Marvel movies in general, but if it's Chloe, you know what? She's got me. She's got my heart. I'll go. Yeah. And her other project, which seems to bridge those two gaps, is a biopic on Bass Reeves, who was the first black deputy U.S. Marshal west of the Mississippi. He arrested over 3,000 criminals and killed 14 in self-defense. This is all around the Oklahoma Territory. So Chloe has taken us back to the West after taking us into, I don't know, (laughs) the Eternals. Yeah, I was like, I'm sure Thor will show up. Who knows what else? (laughs) After hanging out with Thor, she's coming back to the West where she belongs. Please stay there. Maybe I'm like, maybe I'm kind of like Dave. I'm like, Chloe, come back to the West. Stop going out to the Marvel. And she's like, this is what makes me happy. Yeah, so yeah, it's certainly exciting to see what is out there for her. Do you have any final thoughts or do you just want to go into best thing we've seen this week? Well, I do. I think this is, I got to say, Nomadland, favorite movie of 2020. And I know I'm biased because it resonated a lot with me personally. Favorite film of the year, um, Sound of Metal, number two. And I have my top 10 favorite films on Letterboxd if you're interested in how that rounds out. Plug, plug, plug it up. Check us out on hardlythehottest.com for links to our Letterboxd, our social media, our in-depth reviews. If you want to know what William Friedkin, director of The Exorcist, was doing in a jockstrapping gay bars, you can read my article on cruising. Yeah, Duncan's been doing some work uh, in, I would say, some lesser known lesser known 70s cinema. So if you're interested, he's got me hooked on a couple I want to see. I'm interested in cruising. I'm interested in uh, Sorcerer now. Actually, I actually have Sorcerer on my DVD Netflix because I was so interested by talking about reckless 70s cinema uh, for the action sequences. I was like, I kind of want to see that. So yeah, Duncan's doing some work. Um, and if you're interested in delving into into some of that, uh, it's it's well, well worth doing. Thank you. Thank you. So Ryan... Best of the rest. What is, what are some films you would recommend that you saw this week? Duncan, I caught up. You and my brother both saw Judas and the Black Messiah. I caught up with that. I loved that movie. Uh, I also have that review, full review on our website, Hardly the Hottest. We'll be doing a future episode on that. I thought that movie was, uh, you know, had the DNA of The Departed and it had the relationships of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And that is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I just thought it hit really deeply. Um, loved that. And then I've been uh, catching up with uh, all the President's Men. Never seen that. It's considered a classic. And I enjoyed it immensely. A very good movie. And then I started watching Seinfeld. Because I'd never seen it all the way through. Duncan, what are you watching? The best film I saw this week was by a female director that made me cry four times. I'm not talking about Nomadland again. I am talking about greener grass. And these four tiers were not from drama. They were from absurdist, surrealist comedy, crying from laughter. I was about to watch it a second time and just pressing play. I cried from laughter. I love this so much. I mean, I have not heard of this before you raved about it. So 
sell it. Pitch it. All right. So Greener Grass came out in 2019, directed by Jocelyn DeBoer and Don Lubey. Woo, baby. Here we go. If you like Upright Citizens Brigade, Comedy Bang Bang, Saturday Night Live shorts mixed with dark suburbs of David Lynch's Blue Velvet, the dark comedy of Yorgos Lanthimos's The Lobster, and take the Stepford Wives and drive it to its absolute campy extremities. Ooh, greener grass. Like, ugh, ooh. it's a dark satirical comedy. You can't even, you can't even sell it. You're so excited. <laughs> baby, baby, baby. It's like, ugh, I just, I just got, I just want to do it justice. I love it so much. So it's a dark satirical comedy on suburban life where in the opening scene at a soccer game, a woman gives her way a baby to someone that pays it a compliment because she doesn't want to be rude. And then we have a man who loves <laughs> his pool so much. He takes it with him in a jar so he can drink it at restaurants, turns it into pool popsicles. Every adult is wearing braces to symbolize the painful pursuit of perfection in the suburbs. And every teeny tiny microaggression is viewed as a threat of murder. <laughs> so, yeah, if you love adults wearing braces, dealing with suburban nightmares, I'm still working on Pen 15, uh, that wonderful comedy, getting a little traumatic. It's showing you how painful a middle school, middle school sleepover can be. Children are vicious monsters. The suburban is a war zone, right? <laughs> It's out on Hulu. You had me at Yorgos Lanthimos and the Lobster. If you bring up Yorgos Lanthimos, I love his deadpan comedy so much and the delivery and like how it just minds human nature. I mean, as soon as you brought that up, I was like, okay, I'll watch it. All right. And we hope that you will find hope in our future episodes. So we would love to talk to y'all. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are on these movies. Agree or disagree. Tell Duncan why he's wrong. Tell me why I'm wrong. We'll fight. We'll throw tantrums. It'll be great. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. This means a lot to us. We put a lot of work into this. Hopefully you like it. So thank you for going on this journey down those open roads with us. Ryan, it's not goodbye. It's see you later. That's from What's Eating Gilbert Grape, because I don't remember the line from this film. See you down the road. I think see that's it. the line. Yes, it is. Thanks, everybody. This is hardly the hottest. And you are the hottest audience in the world. I just want to give you a big old kiss. Mwah. Stop trying to make out with our audience, Dunks. I'll give you fucking magic in there. Magic? It's hard to be the hottest ticket in town, darling. Where's the next one? Ryan, why don't you think me rehashing someone else's joke is as good as the original? Oh, I'm getting in the van. I'm gosh. leaving, Ryan. <laughs> I hope you find hope out there and people appreciate your rehash jokes. <laughs>